0: Matthew chapter 2 and when you've uh, arrived there will you stand out of reverence for God's word we're going to read Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 we're going to read through verse 16 as we continue on in this Advent series when Jesus shows up Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 reading through verse 16 hear hear the word of the Lord it says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the jews for we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him and when king Herod heard this he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him so he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea they told him because This is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death. So that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Let me read the last two. It says, then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. And this morning I want us to consider this idea that when Jesus shows up, his enemies tremble. When Jesus shows up, his enemies tremble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. For we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When Jesus shows up, his enemies tremble. You know, if you, if you know me well, some of you have been around for a while. Uh, I've been privileged to to be pastoring in the West End for almost 14 years. Some of you have been with me that entire time. If you know me well, one thing you know about me is I genuinely like to read. I, I like books. Uh, in fact, if my schedule holds, I was, I was figuring it out, doing the math, if my schedule holds, I'll be at about 86 books at the end of this year that I've read. Um, now, granted, these days, most of those are because of academic works centered around theology and anthropology, but there's still something for me about a good old-fashioned fiction book. I love fiction. It's actually fiction books that I'll read in the midst of some of my studies that gives my mind a little bit of respite uh, from the more academic. There's nothing that uh, you know, gives your mind a rest from theology and the goodness of God like a good murder mystery, amen? You don't have to say amen to that. But one thing I love about fiction, I think what draws me into fiction books is there's always some sort of a conflict, always. It's like my third grade teacher, Miss Gent, used to remind us that in good writing, there's always a conflict to be resolved, a problem to be fixed, or an enemy to be faced. And in a sense, we, we get that, right? That all great works, all these things that we like to do, maybe you're not a books person, all the movies that you really like, unless you're into like those romantic ones. But even there, there's usually a conflict in the romantic one, right? But, but it's kind of central to good storytelling, In The Lord of the Rings, right, Frodo battled Sauron. In The Brothers Karamazov, author Dostoevsky presents the conflict of a traditional faith in, in, in the modernizing Russian world. Or in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth Bennett must do battle with internal foes, as the title suggests, of Pride and Prejudice. Stories tend to have conflict, a problem, or an enemy to be faced. And I've always wondered... Why it is that the idea of conflict or problems or enemies is so central to our stories. And I I suspect that the reason for this is because it reflects what we intrinsically know to be true. That our world is a world of conflict. That something is broken. And that there is a real enemy to be faced. And so... It really makes sense that in the story of Jesus' birth, at the very beginning, it wouldn't be all butterflies and roses, it wouldn't be all celebration, all worship, that even at the introduction of Jesus, the incarnation, Him coming into this world, there would be conflict, that there would be enemies, that there would be problems, because the world that Jesus is broken in, or or is born into, is a world that is broken, and there's conflict, there's there's problems. But even more, it's the reason he was born, right? Because if the world was as it should be, if there was no conflict, there were no problems, there were no enemies to be faced, there'd be no reason for Jesus to come as he did. But he was born into a world of conflict, into a world of sin, in order to redeem the world from that sin. And make no mistake about it, the story that we just read, the story the story of the, the magi or the wise men. It's a story of conflict. It presents a real enemy that foreshadows the reason that Jesus came. The story of the wise men, like much of the birth narrative that we have looked at up to this point, it's familiar to many of us. However, the story of the wise men is an interesting one because it's probably one of the parts of 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 Jesus' birth and that story that has the most speculation around it. A lot of details that have been left out, and therefore a lot of speculation have filled those gaps. Let me just give you an example. In many of your nativity sets that you set up after Thanksgiving, because normal people start decorating for Christmas after Thanksgiving, (laughs) in a lot of your nativity sets, you might have some wise men. But we know that they weren't present. At the birth of Jesus. Because we see in verse 11 that they enter a house, not a stable, not a barn. It's most likely that Jesus is between two to four years old when this interaction takes place. But we've also determined that there are three of them. We're so confident that we made Christmas songs about it. We three kings. It's assumed that there were three just because there were three gifts presented. But we know that it was probably many more. Because to garner the type of response from King Herod that came with their arrival, there were probably more than three. Herod wouldn't have worried if just three guys from out east show up saying, we found the king of the Jews, but could you imagine if there were a hundred or two hundred? Well, that might spark the response in Herod that we see. So we don't know how many there were. There might have been three, but we don't know. There's a lot of speculation about these things. And there's nothing wrong with speculating about this text. There's nothing wrong with singing We Three Kings. There's nothing wrong with trying to fill in the gaps as long as we don't miss the point that Matthew is actually trying to communicate. And I think we've missed a lot of what Matthew is trying to communicate. One thing that comes across without question is that when Jesus shows up, not only are enemies revealed, but enemies begin to tremble. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to walk through this text and I want to try to pull out some, some key truths that Matthew is revealing and hopefully if I do my job well, draw some connections for your everyday life this morning. So here's, here's the first thing that I want you to see as we consider this idea when Jesus shows up, his enemy trembles. I want you to see that God, God understands enemies differently than we do. God understands enemies differently than differently than we do look with me again at just those first two verses it says after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him now, there's a lot that you can unpack in these two short verses, and I won't be able to touch it all, but some questions that we have to answer, some things we have to identify, is that first we have to identify, who are these wise men? Who, who even are they that are coming to find this baby born who is to be the king of the Jews? And again, for the record, it doesn't say there were three of them. It doesn't say they were kings. In fact, we know they weren't kings. These wise men were philosophers, they were astronomers, and they were astrologers. They worshipped the sky and the signs that they believed it presented. And astrology is very much alive and well today, and that was their religion. They were very intelligent individuals. And it says that they came from the east, so most likely these were men from Persia or Babylonia. But here's why that's significant. Here's what I want you to see. They weren't Jews. They weren't Jews. Now pause and let's think about the significance of this when we consider who's writing it Matthew and his gospel. You see, Matthew's gospel was written to a primarily Jewish Jewish audience. So Matthew's gospel was was written to present the idea that Jesus has the right to be king over the Jews. Matthew's writing to Jews, and in the very beginning of his book, he says, hey, I'm just going to let you all know, you're not the heroes of this story. He tells them that it was the Gentiles who first recognized and worshipped the Messiah who had come. Now think about the beauty of that as you reflect on the Christmas story. Who did God tell first outside of Jesus' blood family? Well, it was shepherds, outcasts, the unclean, the outsider. And it's to them that the angels of heaven declare that a child has been given, a son has been born. But then who? Who? He doesn't move on to the religious leader. No, then it's Gentiles. It's pagans from a foreign land that worship signs and stars who want to meet this child who is to be king of the Jews. Think about that. Herod, the king in Jerusalem, didn't know for years that the Messiah had come. But the shepherds knew. The people the shepherds told knew. Doesn't mean they believed them because they were shepherds. The religious leaders don't know. The scribes, the Pharisees, those who are to teach the law, know the law, instruct on in the law, they don't know for years that the Messiah has come. But the Gentiles know. Why is that significant to us? Well, because central to the Christmas story are the figures that everyone else would have seen as the other and the enemy. And those are the people who are proclaiming the coming of Jesus. Here's what I want you to see, right? The Christmas story declares to us that Jesus can take those we see as our enemy and make them prime recipients for the story of redemption. It's almost as if God meant what he said to Abraham when he declared that all the world would be blessed by your offspring. It's almost as if the angels weren't playing when they said, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Maybe. Maybe. Just maybe the story of Jesus' birth is positioned to teach us that we have to be careful who we label an enemy and an outsider. That maybe, just maybe, we should stop seeing people who are different from us as a problem that needs to be overcome. And listen, y'all don't have to say amen because I know I'm right. Because if you're honest, right now there's some Republicans sitting in this room who think that Democrats are the enemy and they have to be overcome. There are some Democrats in this room right now, and I praise God that we have both Republicans and Democrats. You don't act like I don't know who you are. It's fine. That's the body of Christ, right? It reconciles people with all kinds of ideas and says Jesus is better. But there are some Democrats right now who think that Republicans are the enemy and they need to be overcome. There are some people who are quick to throw label. That's a liberal, that's an enemy. That's a conservative, that's an enemy. There are some poor people right now that think that rich people are the enemy. There are some rich people right now that think that there are poor people who are the enemy. What I'm trying to tell you is that we're not immune to seeing people who are different than us as a problem to be overcome and an enemy to be defeated. But please hear me, the incarnation of Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago in the town of Bethlehem is not a license for you to crush those you think are opposed to the gospel. The incarnation of Jesus is the declaration that God will take enemies and make them his friend. Because you cannot forget, if you are sitting here today and you are a follower of Jesus, it is not because you were not God's enemy. Right? Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies, God reconciled us through the blood of Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, this Christmas season, we should stop seeing people as the problem. Because the Bible tells us in Ephesians six twelve that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Let me put that in the Michael translation. Your struggle is not against Republicans. It's not against Democrats. It's not against liberals or Marxists or conservatives or pro-this or pro-that. That's not your enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. I appreciate how Daryl Bach puts this when he writes in a book about engaging the world. He says, our mission is not to defeat or crush people. It is to stand with spiritual resources against an enemy unseen. Listen, he says, people are not the enemy. They are the goal. And the moment you start labeling people as the enemy is the moment that you stop having any gospel influence on their life. And God reflects this to us with the wise men. Because he takes these pagan Gentiles and he meets them where they are in order to lead them to the Messiah. And don't miss it. He meets them where they are. How did they get there? The wise men said, for we saw a star. Now we have to remember, right? These were astrologers. This is pagan worship. You know, if you're big in astrology, I'm tell you, the Bible's not a big fan of that. Okay, Scripture actually prohibits astrology and mocks it. In Jeremiah 8:2, in Jeremiah 19:13, and in Isaiah 47:13 through 15. But notice this, as one commentator explains: though these things are prohibited and God hates them, this commentator says this: God reversed expectations and spoke to stargazers in the language they would understand, thereby calling Gentiles to Jesus. Now listen, God doesn't condone that worship. God is not for it. But that's how good our God is, is he will meet us in the midst of our sin and use that sin to draw us to something better. And and some of y'all know what I'm talking about because your story is the story of God meeting you in your mess and using that mess to then draw you to something better. Maybe it's just me, but that's my story. He will meet you where you are because God is good at taking an enemy and making them a friend. God met them where they were, not first as enemies to be overcome, but as people to be loved and drawn to Jesus. Now, please hear me. This does not mean that enemies don't exist. Right? We might have real enemies, but even if that's the case, The Bible tells you to love them anyway, but we see that that enemies exist. We see it with Herod, this leads to the second second truth that I I want you to see. God's presence will reveal His enemies. God's presence will reveal His enemies. Not your presence, God's presence. So, so let's keep going the story, right? The wise men, they travel to Jerusalem. That's interesting because it tells us that the star that they were following wasn't pinpointing the exact location. Because if it was, they would have gone to Bethlehem, where Jesus was. But, but they just see a star leading them in a general direction. And so they think he's going to be king of the Jews. Well, let's go to where the king of the Jews lives now, and that's Jerusalem. Because they're thinking, well, surely this king is going to look like every other king. And so they travel to where they believe would be the most likely spot. They tell Herod what had happened and how they they want to see this child born. And notice Herod's response there in verses 3 through 8. It says, when Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find, report back to me, so that I can go and worship him too. It's worth noting that there at the beginning in verse 3, when encountered with the truth that the Messiah had been born, it says that Herod was deeply disturbed, that he trembled, that he was afraid. I mean, think about that. Don't, don't skip over that. Not, not worship, not excitement, not celebration. For hundreds of years, since the last prophet spoke to now, God has been silent. That's the intertestamental period of your Bible. For hundreds of years, God doesn't speak through a prophet. He doesn't reveal his hand. He's silent. They've been waiting for God to speak. You can go back even further. It's been nearly 2,000 years since the promise was made to Abraham that from your offspring will come a seed, and through him all the nations will be blessed. And so you would think that after thousands of years of waiting... Finally, the Messiah has come, but it's not worship, it's not excitement, it's not celebration. And it's not even Herod, it says all of Jerusalem with him were disturbed. But the question we have to ask is why? Why is that their response, right? I mean, hasn't that been the purpose of this long wait, is that one day a Messiah will come, one day a deliverer will show up, and when he does, it will be the greatest day that the world has ever known, and the day has come, and they're troubled. Why did he tremble? Well, we know a little bit about Herod from history. Herod was a talented ruler. He, many Jews at the time called him the usurper because they believed he took the throne illegitimately. He was strong. He was smart. But he was extremely violent and paranoid. Now, that's a lethal combination, violence and paranoia. In fact, Herod was so paranoid that during his rule, he had several of his sons killed as well as his favorite wife, because they were, he believed they were conspiring against him. So Herod is disturbed, here it is, because the arrival of Jesus threatens the thing that he loves most, his power and his rule. But it's even more of an indictment when you consider what happens next. So Herod hears this and it says he gathers the chief priests and the scribes and asks them to validate whether this could be the Messiah. Don't miss that detail. So Herod wants to make sure. And it says, these people are very specific. He grabs the scribes and the chief priests because Herod was a smart leader, right? And the scribes and the chief priests couldn't agree on anything. And so whenever they did agree, Herod was like, that's probably true. And in this case, the scribes and the chief priests both agree by looking at Micah 5-2, by looking at Old Testament prophecy, that this very well could be the Messiah. For them... No worship, no excitement, no celebration. Because power can do that to you. When you think you're in control, it can do that. So what does Herod do? Well, verse 7, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, said, go search for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I can go and worship him too. And we know he had no intention of worshiping Jesus. As we'll see with what happens next, with what we read He wanted to kill Jesus, so much so that he would eventually order the massacre of all baby boys two years old and under in and around Bethlehem. Now, a good Jew would have known that it doesn't go well when you try to kill the baby boys of God's people because it doesn't stop deliverance. That's Egypt, in case you missed it. This is where I want to pause, though, and I want to push in for a little, little bit of honest reflection. It's really easy to read this story and look at Herod and think, what a wicked person. How is it that when Jesus shows up, he could reject him like that? But Herod serves as a real reminder to each and every one of us the temptation to refuse to bow in the presence of Jesus. Because here's the thing with Herod. He's right in his fear. That when Jesus shows up, he challenges all the things that we hold dear. And in some sense, Herod has a better theology than some people sitting in the church because at least he acknowledges when Jesus shows up, things can't stay the same. And there are some people that want to have Jesus and then live their life as they want to live their life. Herod's got good theology. At least he's honest about if Jesus is the Messiah, it changes everything. I just don't want it to change. In some sense, we're reminded that we see who we are in relationship to God, not first and foremost with what we know, but in how we respond when Jesus shows up. Because he knew all the right things. He had it confirmed from the chief priests and scribes, this is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. This is the one that we have been waiting for. He knew it. He believed it. But it didn't change anything. In theory, they recognized that the Messiah was the Messiah, the one that God had promised. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to believe it. Because what we have to remember, church, is that when Jesus shows up, he lays claim to that which is rightly his. He doesn't just want your recognition He demands your life. And how you respond tells us something about whether or not you are God's enemy or his friend. I like how the old reformer, John Calvin, actually explained it when he writes this. He says, and so all ungodly persons, he's talking about Herod, he says, and so all ungodly persons find no difficulty in giving their assent to God on general principles, But when the truth of God begins to press them more closely, they throw out the venom of their rebellion. They freely own that He is the only begotten Son of God, clothed with our flesh, and acknowledge that the one person of God-man has two subsiding natures. And when we come to the power and the office of Christ, a contest immediately breaks out. Because they will not consent to take a lower rank and much less to be reduced to nothing. In a word, so long as wicked men think that it is taking nothing from them, they will yield to God and to scripture some degree of reverence. But when Christ comes in close conflict with ambition, with covetousness, with pride, with misplaced confidence, with hypocrisy and deceit, they immediately forget all modesty and break into a rage. So that's a really old-time way of saying it's one thing to agree with Jesus about who he says he is, It's one thing to acknowledge that indeed he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world with all power and all authority in his hand. It is another thing when that power and authority demand you lay down your life and the things you hold most dear. And make no mistake, when Jesus shows up, he will demand you lay down your ambitions, your goals, your comfort, your desires, your future, your plans. He will demand you lay it all down. And what this text is positioned to teach us is that you can recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. You can recognize that he lived the perfect life. He died a death in the place of sinners. You can believe that he rose from the dead three days later. You can believe all of that. And still be an enemy of God. Because even the demons believe that and they shudder. It goes back to what I've said to you so many times. You cannot have Jesus as Savior. And not have him as Lord. But a lot of us want the salvation. So that we can go keep living however we want to live our lives. But those two are inseparable. If Jesus is Savior, he must be Lord. And if he is your Lord, he is your Savior. Because God demands more than mere mental recognition. He demands your life. Jesus says it in Matthew 16, 24. He said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You might be asking the question, well, why in the world would I want to do that? And I think that's a valid question. And my answer to that would be, Because it's worth it because what Jesus offers is better than anything you would lose by following him you might lose popularity you might lose your job you might lose friends and family but what you gain is eternity with the God who made you you get freedom from the sting of sin and the power of death you get hope that one day every tear will be wiped away and every heartache removed forever as you dwell with God in glory. So Herod trembles. He's disturbed and he plans to keep his power by any means necessary. What about you? But this leads to the final, the final truth I want you to see this morning. God's plans will not be thwarted by his enemies. So the wise men, they do what they're told. They travel to Bethlehem. We read, beginning in verse 11, that entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened the treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these Gentiles, these pagans, These enemies, if you will, see Jesus, and they fall on their knees in worship. They present him with gifts. But here's here's where I want to draw your attention to. In verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child, kill him. So they got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt, and stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. And Herod, when he realized... He had been outwitted by the wise men. He flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. What we see, despite the great attempts of Herod, is that God's plans won't be thwarted. In a sense, you see the desperation and the wickedness of Herod Daniel Doriani explained in his commentary, he said that if, if it, I liked this, he said, if Jesus is indeed the God-ordained ruler of Israel, why would he dream that he could even kill him? And if, he is the, and, if he, and if the wise men were wrong, why would he even try to kill a harmless child? Herod is cunning, but sin has made him a fool. See, Herod thought that he could stop God from, from fulfilling his promises of old. And in a desperate attempt to hold on to what he thought was his power and authority, he orders the massacre of children, but unbeknownst to him, he was actually fulfilling more prophecies. First, in verse 15, "Out of Egypt I called my son," fulfilling the prophecy of Hosea 11:1, that the redeemer would come out of Egypt. And so, where did they flee when Herod tried? Where did God tell them to flee? Go to Egypt because out of Egypt I called my son. And then the slaughter of children fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah 31:15, which Matthew records there in verse 18. A voice heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. God is so sovereign that even our rebellion is used by God to accomplish that which he has promised to accomplish. Here's here's what I'm getting at some hope that I want to offer. If that's true, then it doesn't matter how much the nations rage. It doesn't matter how cunning the schemes of hell. God will not fail. And church, we need that reminder because it is so easy to look at our world today and get so discouraged about what is happening and what we see and decisions that are being made and policies that are being written and the racism that still exists and all the nonsense in this world and to say, where is God in all of this? But God is so sovereign that even rebellion won't stop God from accomplishing his plans. And we got to rest in that, that he will be the conquering king. He is the conquering king. He has never failed. He will not fail you. There is no amount of rebellion that can stop God from accomplishing all that he has set out to accomplish. And so what that means is that if he promises, he is faithful to deliver. He is faithful to deliver. Let me put it like this. God has never met an enemy whose trembling was not justified. Because when Jesus shows up, his enemies will tremble. I know it's true, because Herod wouldn't be the last person to tremble when Jesus showed up. In Mark 1, as Jesus shows up in Capernaum and a demon-possessed man is there, the demon trembles in fear at the presence of Jesus. Just a few chapters later in Mark 5, as Jesus steps off a boat in the region of the Gerasenes, Jesus encounters a man living in the graveyard, in the tombs, who no one could control. And when Jesus shows up, the demons tremble. But I'll do you one better. The same Jesus who who Herod tried to kill who was not welcomed in his hometown the Jesus who the religious leaders plotted to kill he lived a life in perfect obedience to the father fulfilled the law and yet suffered as a criminal and peter tells us that that wicked men killed jesus and that satan thought that he had won but can you imagine the scene that peter describes in 1 peter chapter 3 where he says that he was crucified put to death in the flesh And can you imagine all of hell celebrating in that moment when the man, Jesus, dies? As an old writer once said, hell was in the midst of carnival when Christ was crucified. But then Peter says, though he was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. And what did he do during those three days alive in the spirit? Well, as the Apostle Creed tells us, he descended into hell. Why? To say, you thought you won, but I'm still here. Oh, all hell have trembled when Jesus showed up because they thought they could stop the plan of God. And just to prove it, three days later, he walked out of a tomb with all power and authority in his hands, extending salvation to anyone who would follow him. I know it's true that when Jesus shows up, his enemies tremble. So the question then is, what do we do with that? Like, that's a good thing to be encouraged by. I'm glad they shake when they see Jesus. Gives me a little confidence. He ain't going to fail. But what do we do with that? Well, here's where I want to leave you this morning. What we celebrate at Christmas is the fact that Jesus has shown up. And there are three responses to Jesus showing up that we see in our text this morning. First, we can respond like Herod. And we can reject Jesus' lordship. We can reject the salvation that he extends to us. And we can try to be the gods of our own lives. It is an option that is before you. It's a bad option, but it's an option. It's an option that leads to death and suffering for all of eternity. Or you can respond like the religious leaders in our story who know all the right things, who have really good theology, who can interpret Old Testament prophecy to the point that they can say, yeah, this is probably that guy. And still refuse to bow to the lordship of Jesus. And I think for many of us, that's going to be our temptation, is that we know a lot about him. Right? We've read the books. We've got the degrees. We've been in church our whole life. We know all the answers. But when Jesus says, lay this down, we say no. Or, Or we can respond like the wise men who bring their baggage with them, who bring their pagan worship with them and their wrong ideas, and they meet Jesus and they fall at his feet. But there is one thing that I know. No matter which option you choose, one day every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And we can bow as sons and daughters in worship, or we will bow at the end in trembling and fear. But make no mistake about it, everyone will bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, this baby who was born in a manger nearly 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this beautiful reminder that there is no one who is a match for you. That in your presence, enemies will tremble. And so, Lord, I pray, I genuinely pray this morning that that will free us from thinking that we got to fight all the enemies ourselves. I pray that that will free us to see people not as a problem to be overcome, but as image bearers to be loved that there would be something different about how we interact with the world, that we wouldn't fall into the trap of labeling the other the enemy, but that we would believe that you are a God who is reconciling a people from all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all cultures, all experiences. You are redeeming one body, your bride. God, I pray that in those moments where if we're honest, it just seems like the enemy's winning in our life, that we would hold on to the fact that you have already won. And the cross and the empty tomb declare that to us this morning. So as we continue on in this Advent season, coming closer to Christmas, I pray that while while we celebrate with friends and family, while we have meals and gifts, God in all of that that we wouldn't lose sight of the truth that Jesus showed up that he lived the life that we should have lived but we can't he died the death that we deserve to die and in so doing took the full weight of your wrath and your hatred of sin on himself so that we wouldn't have to face that and he died was buried But three days later, he rose from the grave. And to this day, he extends salvation to anyone who would come. And I pray that we would savor that truth. We would hold on to it and let it be our hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.